Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome to the Schnuit Nuit Just going to see if anyone rewound that bit. Uh, welcome to the Dwarfcast Book Club, the series in which we reread, discuss, and dissect the four red dwarf novels bit by bit. And today it's Back to Back World for Backwards Part Three, Back to Back World, and also the Midlog, the Difference One. I'm an increasingly senile Ian Symes, and joining me today are the constantly wanking Jonathan Capps. <laughs> Hello, but backwards. And the barbed penis of Danny Stevenson. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As always, we recommend you brush up on the book before listening, and if you've forgotten what happened last time, then for the third podcast in a row, it's not actually that relevant, but at <laughs> some point, all of this will matter, we promise. And here's the recap. An experimental time-travelling ship, the Wildfire, returns to base before it's set off. Damaged beyond repair and its pilot burnt to death, the pilot, Ace Rimmer, studies the craft with flight engineer Dave Spanners Lister and vows to take the flight anyway. Spanners pulls an all-nighter and realises that the date on the black box recording was three days ago. Plus, the pilot is sporting a black eye and lacking a St. Christopher's medal, following a bar fight that Ace had previously. And so they conclude that the ship must have come from another reality. The mission commander, Pete Tranter, doesn't see the value in a dimension-jumping ship and pulls the plug, causing Spanners to berate him to the extent that he's arrested for gross insubordination. He finds himself locked up with Peterson, but Ace brings them both out to prepare for the flight. Having resigned, Tranter watches the launch on TV. It ends with Ace successfully jumping dimensions and relaying a short message that he's millions of light-years from home and has materialised in the vicinity of another craft. But what craft will that be? We'll find out in about a month. Uh, because now we pick up from the end of the first part of the book. It's Back to Back World. And somewhat surprisingly, it does continue immediately on. Whereas in my memory, the time jump had already happened by this point because that would probably make more sense. <laughs> if you were being unkind, it... It, it seems to be to in order to like get in all of the same fucking backwards jokes again after you've had mm. a bit of a break because <laughs> <laughs> the cat and list have a big conversation they're getting their head around like how eating works and shitting and whatnot and it's mostly shitting based it's mostly shitting based as international debris points out starting with a vivid description of a pile of shit thanks rob <laughs> Thanks, George. <laughs> so we have that, and we have the implication of a backwards blowjob as well, which is a little bit confusing. <laughs> I didn't particularly like having the word blowjob in Red Dwarf no. for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> Seems a bit explicit. Rob is just warming up at this point, right? Like, yeah, we've we've got some. Oh, there's some shit to come. That's the starter. This <laughs> yeah. Is the main course. Yeah, I think Warbadog sums it up. <laughs> Not that I want to like focus too much on fellatio. I don't immediately see what would be horrible about the sensation of oral sex once you got over the end, back its beginning, but I don't really want to. I'll trust that Rob's thought long and hard about it. There's definitely some long and hard thinking in this part <laughs> of the book. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it feels like it's setting up for maybe a certain sexual encounter involving the cat, but I'm not sure. We'll come to that. And then we'll talk about it. <laughs> Okay, this is another important question from Warbadog. Well, it's an important question from Warbadog. Do cats famously shit three times a day? Now, in my memory, yes. 
I think they do. <laughs> they do. Um, it depends on the cat. I don't think <laughs> yeah. our cat Donna does more than one or two. Close but yeah, that did strike me that the cat's as regular as clockwork. He'd be doing it three times a day. That struck me as a bit much. I mean, it'd be a bit much for a human. You probably need to change your diet. Oh. <laughs> Or at least ensure that you've got a good data plan. <laughs> I plan my days really well with it. Yeah, leave yourself a good day to plan the next day. <laughs> Other than the poo-based nature of it all, I enjoyed starting a part in the cat's head mm. uh, because we very rarely uh, get his point of view. It's almost, you know, without fail, Lister and Rimmer. And then I feel like Holly and Crichton are both more likely to have a... a chapter or a section of a chapter you know on, about their thoughts and their internal monologue than the cat is so it was yep. nice as an opener to the part to get a bit of cat because rim has been programmed to to run the right way around Crichton will have been worked the right way around lister already knows how to work this world the right kind way of cat is the only mm. person who isn't mm. really prepared for this universe yeah yeah it's the only audience surrogate at this point I'm surprised that he can get past all of the... Like, happy about the idea about things getting cleaner as the day goes on. It just strikes me as weird that, like, the cat can get used to that because, no, it sounds awful. Like, especially yeah, yeah. especially the waking up as tired as you were before. You, <laughs> you had your 20-hour nap and wake up as tired as you were before that 20-hour nap and then you progressively get... Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, he's good. He's a good kind of um, view into like all the terrible things about a backwards world. Because a bit later on, we'll get some of the questionable. Here's what's good about the backwards world. Whereas I'm of the opinion that there's nothing good about the a backwards quote unquote world. positives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got another important debate to be had that Dave brings up: reverse pissing being a more unpleasant prospect than reverse <laughs> shitting. Cat, you're so crazy. What, um, what would you prefer? If you had to <laughs> have sex with a Muppet, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like the pissing it has the potential to be more pain. Well, that's the thing, is that you're not going to feel... Oh, it all depends on the sensation. Is it, Are you going to experience the sensation you would literally feel if in a forwards universe you were having liquid shoved up your urethra? <laughs> See, I don't think you do. No. Because you feel, like with eating, you feel full and then you regurgitate the food and you feel hungry. That's not how it would work. You'd feel really sick after you'd regurgitated some food in a forwards universe. Yeah. So I think you'd just have the same effect. I think you'd go from being relieved to really badly needing a piss, and yeah. that would be the worst thing. And about that would it. slowly go away. Pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, it would be bad. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the point of this section. Everything is bad. Like. <laughs> yeah. There's very few things other than being injured or whatnot where. The before is better than the after, especially when it comes to knowing you're not going to die is basically the only yeah. thing, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and and yeah, like um, in the first part as well, the satisfying thing of Lister slowly becoming less injured along the yeah. along the yeah. I think physical injuries are the only things that are better in a backwards universe. Yeah. In terms of things that can happen to your body. Yeah. And even then, in a backwards universe, you're still got to put up with the full timeline of having and in, being injured than you would in yeah. a forward universe. It just happens. You're just paying it forward. Yeah, I think reverse pissing would probably be worth it. Oh, do you know what? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's similar with the blowjob thing. It seems to... <laughs> Rob has an issue with things going up the urethra. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps better move on. I think what, what really gets me and that makes the, like the reality of living in this universe a complete ball ache is this drawn-out description of how the rabbit gets uneaten. 
And then when mm. Lister gets back and talks to Crichton, and Crichton's like, oh, well, the waste disposal brought them up, so I had to find a dirty plate. and put It's like it's just the least satisfying way of doing anything. And just that whole yeah. rigmarole, and then having to go through all the effort of setting the trap, even though it, you've already had the benefit of the thing. Yeah, it's the opposite of delayed gratification. Yeah. It's instant gratification, and then having to do the work afterwards. Yeah. But it all seems like it's urges and instincts. I still haven't got my head around whether they knowingly... Neither was Rob. Uh, no, that's true. <laughs> but like the idea of like the cat holding his hand out and then a rock comes and he catches it. If there's an instinct of you can almost know you're going to do that. It's a mix, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's very yeah. muddled as to whether you are consciously performing a task in order to do it backwards or it's something you... Because the cat mm. doesn't realise why he's... He has yep. an urge to go and ruffle around in the mud, and then he like, finds the shit. And then what yeah. would happen if Crichton just got all the all the, the the rabbit and just said to Lister, "Do you know what? Why didn't you just like try and eat this?" Or he just threw it, just threw it to one side and didn't bother, you know, setting the trap and doing all that crap. What would happen? Would he just somehow get to the stage it needed to be anyway? Would it just yeah? Because that would is the what universe explode. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's what we were speculating about in the first part. That like, there's a way that the universe has to make it happen. Yeah. In a sort of predeterminism way, even if you deliberately try and avoid it, like with future echoes. And that's the worst thing about this universe, is the complete lack of apparent free will. And another thing I think we discussed in part one, which was a long time ago now, was the plot element of this part, is them figuring out how exactly they missed the flight window and what they needed to do. I think we came to the conclusion that they didn't need the landing jets they should have just waited for the landing jets to fly up at them before Rimmer does in here because it's spelled out properly here yeah but it still obviously didn't happen that way otherwise it would have happened that way <laughs> yeah if they had not they didn't miss a flight window they just couldn't they were never going to do it they were never going to do it it because was there gonna... wasn't enough, yeah, there wasn't enough time when they got back to Starbuck for it to unrust and to yeah, yeah. It's nothing. To, it's got nothing to do with the fact that oh, we could have forced Starbuck to, to land and it would have done. Yeah, Rimmer's just... completely wrong. Yeah, yeah Rimmer yeah. is wrong, and that's the thing. Rimmer couldn't understand. Like Lister explains that to Rimmer, just like it doesn't matter whether we could have done, we didn't, and the reason yeah. we didn't is because. We never did it. It already, you know, it happened because we have happened. no determinism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah it was have going to have not happened. <laughs> exactly. It is will have going to have happened. Happened. There's kind of a fudging of like both types of scenario where you think you have control over a system, and then one way the system has control of you, and yeah, it's all a bit mm. messy. But you're never going to get this stuff right because it's such a mindfucker. Yes, it is. And especially for the cat, this is, and for Rimmer getting his head around it as well. This is the earliest stage of them having to deal with it all yeah and so maybe they think they have decisions to make like when cat has a shit and he has to sort of stare at the pile of shit for a while and psych himself up to do it maybe that's like the illusion of making a decision to poo yeah running that forward is that he has a shit on the floor and then just stands there and then just looks at it <laughs> That's exactly what I was Until thinking Until the about. point that flies land on it, yeah. lay eggs, and maggots crawl out of those eggs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. He has to do that three times a day as well. Yeah. He's never getting anything else done. And then Lister has a protracted conversation with him stood right next to it. <laughs> <laughs> Dave makes a good point here about Rob still has a fantastic way of writing these characters in novel form. Uh, Rimmer desperately trying to pin all the blame on Crichton and then thinking he's won the argument, um, but also feeling like he's lost it is a great little moment. On that note of what works well 
in Red Dwarf and, and doesn't steal nights. So there's one thing that I really miss about the book up to this point is the crew not spending any time in their own universe because it means that we don't really have them simply talking nonsense about everyday life which can be one of Dwarf's strengths. Yeah, It's the problem that the novels have had since about two-thirds of the way through Infinity. Yeah, there's been no status quo. Yeah. But I guess we get close to that kind of thing. It's just backwardsified. Yeah. With the conversation like between Lister and Crichton in particular about the rabbit and what happens and it's quite it's a funny section of dialogue that arises from the situation, so that's another of dwarf's big strength. So it's not it's like it's not like we're completely missing out, it's just a different type of dwarfy chat. Yeah. It's true. But I think yeah, people are kinda of craving the you know, to pluck a cliche out there, the the bunker room type scenes. They're wanting yeah. the dwarf back. Yeah, yeah. At this point. Because the backward stuff just kind of hurts to think about, and it's like after a while you're just thinking, yeah, I get it. Yeah, there's been a lot of complaints in the comments. <laughs> complaints, like as if, like as if we're going to change it. Rob, change it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like everyone's saying, you know, like we've we've like we we've had the backward stuff now. We've, we're kind of yeah. you know, uh, we're, we're getting fatigued by it a little bit. Maybe if we'd gone straight into just the, the chapter three, um, it would have been a bit better. But. Um, because all the backward stuff before then, you know, we we were saying about how kind of well it holds together. It just about does its job well. But yeah, I think maybe it does outstay its welcome by exactly one chapter. There's an interesting thing where someone says that, like, because chapter three we come back to it, like we come back to backwards, come and everyone's saying oh, that should have come, that should have been just maybe at the back end of one. But that's it doesn't really make much sense to do that. To be honest with you, not not the way that the book is paced anyway. It's a, it's a funny one. I can see the arguments either way. Mm. If you're gonna if you're gonna have a break away from backwards world um, in order to go and visit Ace's world for a bit, then why not have the time jump take place during that period? But it's structured the way it is so that there's a better cliffhanger at the end of part one. Basically, is the way I see it because that's yeah. when they realise that they're going to be stuck there for ten years, and then the first part of this part is them figuring out how you know what to do and coming to terms with that and so instead of it being separated by ace bit there is a little mini detour within this part in sub chapter two um we go and see holly for a bit yeah and i had genuinely forgotten that holly was a character in red dwarf at this stage yeah because it's been so long the audience cheers loudly (laughs) And it would be Norman Lovett. It bloody would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. So this is basically kind of recapping the whole what happened in the back end of Better Than Life. Yeah, how they got to back, Backwards World in the first place and what Holly had to do in order yeah. to get them there. Nicely connecting this book with, with the other two, I think, in quite a succinct way. Also, the Onion stuff is like... I read that surprised that that wasn't in Infinity somewhere. Like that feels mm. like such a classic, quintessential Holly bit about the unions. Yeah. Um, to the point where I'm thinking, has it turned up somewhere else? I don't think so. It doesn't feel like it's a bit from backwards because stuffing backwards in Last Human always feel like things that I don't tend to remember as well. But it feels like it's from his similar monologue in Infinity where he's talking about going mad while he was on his own. Yeah, and the things yeah. that he preoccupies himself with. Trying to work out whether certain words is whether he's made them up or whether he's actually yeah. like whether he's thought about them or whether they're even words anymore. It's a yeah. source of perturbation. Yeah. <laughs> and who knocks Swansea City out of the FA Cup? <laughs> <laughs> 
further reading, see previous book content. Yeah. <laughs> Pete Part 3 says it's strange how simply humorously recapping a previous novel is intrinsically satisfying, but maybe it's because this one chapter links to the events of Better Than Life more than Last Human managed in an entire novel. Yeah, and to be fair, Last Human wasn't even trying. So, But yeah, this is definitely... It's a more satisfying part three to the trilogy than Last Human is for that reason. It it does feel like, you know, the consequences that were left dangling at the end of Better Than Life have been picked up now. Yeah, Dave says that. Dave says all the stuff referring back to talking, the IQ boost, feels like a true third Red Dwarf novel. It's a funny way to, like, backpedal on the the high IQ thing, because it's a difficult thing to reverse. Like, Holly's dead unless you do something a bit deus ex machinery. Machinery. Um, but didn't he play Percy in Black Adam? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. But yeah, the, the logic of it, and then well, the more IQ he cuts from himself, the better idea it is to uh, keep doing yeah. it. Yeah, to keep doing it. I mean, that's that's like drinking, isn't it? The more you drink, the more it's a good idea to have another one. He knows his onions at least. <laughs> I found it really sad. Yeah, I it felt is, really it is, sorry for Holly. He got led along and kind of taken advantage of by Toki Toaster in like persuading the senile Holly to do this to himself and got to experience that brilliant thing, but then again for the second time just had to spend years and years on his own going yeah. increasingly do Lally. Yeah. It's the second time it's twice in one lifetime. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And um, there is a bit of weirdness here. Well, I think Clem probably sums this one up. <clears throat> is this about the cat, Rimmer and Cat thing? It's just about where Holly is at any one time and which universe yeah. is in. So, let me see. So, when exactly is all of this meant to be happening? This is what Clem says. It's mostly while the crew are on Backwards Earth, isn't it? But then Holly travels to the Backwards Universe on his own to increase his runtime, leaving Rim and the cat stranded in Starbug? Question mark. Question mark. <laughs> so, yeah. So, at some point, we're meant to believe that Holly goes to the Backwards Universe, leaving everyone stranded in Starbug in the Forwards Universe. So is that what's happening during Better Than Life? No, because they're on Red Dwarf during Better Than Life. No! Yes. <laughs> so is, <laughs> Because if he can't go to the Backwards Universe, leaving them stranded in the Forwards Universe, because they were never stranded in the Forwards Universe. He was only ever turned on in the Forwards Universe, given them the Backwards Universe plan, and then they went there. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. then... While Lister was in the Backwards Universe, Holly also went over there while the rest were back in Starbug in her unseen adventures in, during those 30 years. And but, yeah. then he came back, missed them going across, and then he stayed in the Forwards Universe ever since. That Yes, poss- let's say that. Let's say that, yeah. <laughs> I've said some words. It feels like it might be true. Cat would have had to go into stasis. Yeah. Or deep sleep or something in order to catch up you know because otherwise they'd be constantly going back and forth where yeah one of cat and lister is old and the other is young <laughs> <laughs> so cat would have to not age while lister was in in backwards well, essentially immortal yeah just keep hopping between the two yeah. okay so there is there's a line in here that kind of it, it does the somehow thing where it's like you can't quite remember why he uh, operating his maximum intellect actually increased his lifespan. He, if he could stay there for a few decades, everything would have been just peachy. He would have been one super smart cookie of a computer right now. Unfortunately, he had to return to his own universe where he'd left Rimmer and Cat stranded in Starbug. He couldn't remember now quite why he hadn't brought them with him. This feels like Rob trying to just like, oh, yeah. I don't know. 
there's an editor note in the margins. Perhaps the trip being too dangerous for them. Perhaps the stasis boots would operate if time running backwards. It's like, uh, they must have had a damn fine reason for his genius self to have done that. And it's like, you know, it's like the whole thing of Rob just going, uh, somehow, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe it was this reason. And Ho- Holly just couldn't remember. If you're going to hang a lampshade on something, then at least draw uh, an amusing moustache on it. <laughs> but it's, it's just odd that he mentions Rimmer and Cat, but not Croton. Yeah, that's all. So where's Croton when this is happening? <laughs> yeah. Holly can't remember why he didn't include Crichton in his work. <laughs> he probably had a good reason. Pete says the whole bit is presumably set up for a somehow, but the absence of Crichton poses questions that would otherwise have been hand-waved away. Mm. Yeah, if it had just said Rimmer, Cat and Crichton were stranded in the Forwards universe, that's why Holly had to come back, then no problem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we could probably just put it down to maybe just some weird, um, a weird error of omission when it comes to Crichton. I think it was just um, like a big plot point. And, it, and it's just, film. yeah, it's just kind of a, a little bit slightly messy plotting, which essentially, at the, mm-hmm. in the end, doesn't really Pete describes matter. it as uh, last human levels of sketchiness, <laughs> which at least, you know, we're in part three, chapter two, and that's the first bit of sketchiness we've come across. Yeah, it's yeah. the first yeah. really Unlike big somehow human. that we've, you know... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... Even that, I think that even that say that is is being quite harsh on this. To be honest, I think we might be forgetting just how sketchy last human levels of sketchiness really are. <laughs> I mean, if if if, if we're gonna be, if we're gonna go down that route, then you know there there's also sketchiness in in episodes, just like Parallel Universe. He does says you know somehow don't ask me why, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean it's those levels of just don't fucking think about it. Just, yeah. just move on, yeah. move on. And I think um, how much it bothers you. That that's there depends on how much you're enjoying the rest of it. As always, uh, if it's a funny episode that you like, you give it a pass, and if it's a ba- if it's a not unfunny episode that you don't like, but when it actually yeah. interrupts the actual plot and actually gets in the way for storytelling, that's when it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and and all this bit exists for is to be funny, to give us some holly, and to place him in the right spot for the fourth part, um, and that's it. Yeah, it is a teaser mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, so it's like little sidestep this chapter. <laughs> The novel has lots of these, this mm. novel. There's lots of bits that are... Uh, here's, here's a little something that will become relevant later. It's like we said, like none of the recaps so far have been relevant at no, all. Yeah. Rob, yeah. Rob definitely read a book on um, interesting novel structure and applied every lesson he learned yeah. to this one. Like, it's everywhere. Warbadog says the cliffhanger teases are getting a bit excessive now. <laughs> this would better be good, let's all just go home. Because <laughs> <laughs> this ends with... Another of those non-specific teasers that something bad is about to happen, mm-hmm. that the characters have noticed something, but we, the audience, are not privy to it yet. And so there's a lot of these that are, that are stacked up one on top of one another. And it's all happening in different directions as well. You've got like you've got yeah. Holly's one that's not sure about what's going on. You've got Ace's one he's just jumped mm-hmm. and you don't know what's happening. And, and you get like a three one. hanging threads that need to be tied up, and it's yeah. like. In my memory, it's like it's actually quite a good payoff, but but I might be I might be wrong. But yeah, definitely involves genitals. Anyway, <laughs> oh, should we get into it then? Are we going to jump into chapter three? Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. I will say yeah. this to begin with: it's not as bad as I remember it being. Ah, oh, really interesting. It was worse than I remembered. Really, yeah. it's in, it's weird because it it just doesn't because in my head it was a lot worse. Like there was a lot more. It felt like as if the descriptions were a lot more graphic, but it's not as bad as the punchline of the whole thing is right at the end. So that's the point of you know you're all confused until later on. But I think what what makes this worse 
like or like worse than I remembered on this is that I hadn't really considered before how um, meaning uh, uh, pointless this is, like how to to, mm. to the overall story how superfluous it is. I just had a feeling of dread from the opening line, which was <laughs> the cat was now fifteen years old and he was about to have sex for the first time in his life. I was like, oh shit, this is a whole chapter. This is not just a passing thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a whole chapter. And yeah, it has no bearing on anything for the rest of the book, no. other than a few gags in the next chapter. So the only reason it's here is not for any plot reasons, it's not really for any character development reasons, it's there for laughs, which I think makes it worse mm. than having something like this depicted for a serious, proper reason, than just thinking, than it being there to be funny. There's a punchline. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, I mean, God, we use this as a punchline. We've used this as a punchline for twenty years. Like you know, we've been making jokes about this this chapter in yeah. various different ways all the time. So you know, but yeah, it's it's just like if you just look at it in the cold light of day. Also, look at it this way as well. Like if you if you start to look at like the the, the meta narrative of like the the hillbillies and their relationship with the crew because they've existed in the same place for ten years. Yeah. We don't really know what's kind of happened in that ten years, but right at the start, they have their their niece horrifically in. Injured. Some stranger out there horrifically injured their niece, and you mm. know they take her away. She has to go away somewhere. We don't know. And then for for ten years, presumably, they're completely paranoid about these horrific people that are that are you know kind of hanging around to the point where eventually one of them finds them, is killed by them, and then the other one is left chasing yeah. off Lister and everything. It's like you know who's the real bad guys in this story? <laughs> Human beings. It is. And a cat. <laughs> it's usually a cat. Cats are usually the bad guys in any story. And on the more immediate level, there's some very weird things happening with the backwards logic. In that, as we read it, the two hillbillies, Zach and Zeke, are having like a, a hoedown. And then. Trying to cheer her up, I think. <laughs> in a misguided attempt to cheer, yeah, I mean... <laughs> cheer up. Um... So they're having the hoedown, and then they go and comfort Lindy Lou. Yeah. And and then she runs off and etc. So when you reverse that, they comfort her and then get the banjo out and have a hoedown, which doesn't really I mean it's their way it's their only way of making things better. It's like let's let's a, just have hoedown? a good old fashioned hoedown. Is there anything to be said for having a <laughs> God I love playing hoedowns. I and mean, I think one of the issues is that you're not really expected at any point to think about this from Lindy Lou's point of view. But what happens to her is horrific. Mm-hmm. It's it's terrible. She has massive, painful, debilitating and traumatic injuries as a result of this sexual encounter, which she didn't enter into with informed consent because she didn't know what she was letting herself in for. Yep. She is so traumatised by it that she has to leave home and you know, be bundled, crying into the back of a van, and and driven away somewhere. Sent off, God knows where. Yeah, it's just really, really horrible, <laughs> and and it's just the fact that it's it's played for laughs, and you're supposed to find the punchline hilarious that I have an issue with. There's a there's a trope that kind of exists quite a lot, maybe not as much anymore, but you get it a lot in Buffy specifically, which is uh, women being punished for um, sexual encounters. And then being the only ones to be punished for it. You get it with Buffy. She's punished because um, it turns Angel 
evil and he loses his soul this is when she loses her virginity so she's essentially punished like for about two seasons worth of like her boyfriend being a murderous you know soulless vampire after this and it's like it's it's, it's a common thing is that you know sex that probably shouldn't have happened happens and then it's the woman that gets punished for it yeah essentially even though it's, it's a woman that i mean we say woman <laughs> yeah girl well it's one of those things where it's technically from the cat's point of view, it's so like she's older than him. Yeah. They're both a similar age. There's no issues there. It's just, it's just that it ends really badly and it's horrible. Like, who is it? Uh, someone sums this up quite well. <laughs> I built up so much. This is Warbadog says. I built up so much in my mind, uh, so much worse in my mind as Cat hungrily approaches the crying woman. Um, I was quite relieved when it was consensual initially. Um, it was an accident. We can worry about Rob, but the cat's all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, from the character point of view, it was an innocent mistake on the cat's part. The cat didn't um, yeah. He makes that very clear yeah, that the was... cat assumes that all all people have this barbed penis. I didn't even think he, about it, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't know that you know it's something that he should have communicated to Lindy Lou in some way. But it's just, I mean, it's very sexual, obviously. <laughs> That's a stupid thing to say. Yeah. But like, the whole, all the, the pros in this section, it's quite... It's not explicit as such, but it's definitely more raunchy than Red Dwarf has ever been. Mm. Yeah, it's There's good. some odd things about um, licking armpits and stuff like that, and gingham dresses and cotton panties and all that. It's a, all a bit Mills and Boone all of a sudden. Well, it's, it, is, uh, it is our kind of first... Because like, when we get romanticism from Lister's point of view, it's it's all quite sweet and based on you know pinball smiles and mm. ships. Um but this is from the cat's point of view, <laughs> who's I guess supposed to be a bit more. I don't know. I think just I think he's 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 very sort of, uh, it's it's very much instinctual and almost mm, kind of yeah. almost. Um, it's all animal, isn't it? Literally. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's all quite. Um, I wouldn't say savage, but it's not. It's not what I'm after. Primal. Primal. It's very, prim- it's very primal. Like the cat having not any experience at all in any of these. The experiences. This is not only the cat, but a teenager exactly. version of the cat as yeah. well. Um, so it's kind of all from his perspective. So this is his interpretation, like his sort of rose-tinted view. I think because there is a bit of chat in the comments about Lindy Lou, like they're inbred. These lot, <laughs> Zach and Z. Well, it's to be yeah. assumed. I mean, that's what Vimmer says about them. But just because they're I mean, a cousin they? to someone to two other people doesn't mean that they're inbred it just means that they're close related and still hanging out mm. I don't think we're ever given any actual evidence that they're inbred it's just no but the implication other is other than there. Rimmer sort of you know making assumptions yeah. <laughs> based on the fact that you know they're sort of backwards literally living in the backwards not in backwards backwards <laughs> the backwards in backwards yeah. ah the backwards backwards <laughs> Um, Pete Part 3 says it's bizarre that Lindy Lou is described as the most beautiful woman who ever dreamed of being alive as well as some kind of cousin to Ezekiel and Zacharias I wonder if she has webbed toes but <laughs> like it doesn't matter what she actually looks like uh, but in the cat's head she's this perfect woman yeah. and that's how therefore she's described yeah. yeah it's just like the cat's idea of sexy is is probably very different to you know a human's yeah. idea of sexy pipe me <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> On the other hand, if this does have a hidden plot reason for being there, then it's that this unholy union was blessed because there is uh, <laughs> there's a couple of comments again with Pete. Are we meant to take this to the logical conclusion that Cat just unreproduced and Lindy Lou recently unbirthed a kindle of kittens? 
I do like a Kindle of kittens. <laughs> That's good. Although it does sound like you are, um, you don't know what else to do with these kittens, and therefore you have to put them on a big fire. <laughs> I think a Kindle of kittens is actually the collective term. Excellent. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> and Clem says the thought of part cat people descended from Lindy Lou being a part of the backwards Earth's past slash future is such a weird one. I quite like that idea, but none of this has any bearing on the rest of the book. <laughs> no. Yeah. Also, I don't think, I, like, I mean, Lister doesn't really mention it, and it probably would have been fairly notable. Yeah. In the, in the wider scientific community. Um, uh, I mean, I mean, I don't want to get into this, but I mean, like, the, the fact that if someone had given birth to a half cat, half human hybrid in the middle of the backwoods, it's not going to get found by the government, is it? I mean, you never know. They were pretty keen on ET. I mean, yeah, biologically, probably wouldn't have even happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There'd be some incompatibility that going on there. Yeah, cat sperm would have to be compatible with human ovaries. You're saying they won't be catapatable. <laughs> Compatible. And also, if you know, if you're like you're halving the cat DNA, because cat is already doesn't look much like a cat other than his teeth and his barbed penis <laughs> pretty much <laughs> the only thing so physically a half cat half human would just have slightly longer teeth and a slightly barbed penis <laughs> compared to a standard human yeah it's not like the last human where uh, a, a fully formed human being um, is birthed from a primate oh god let's not get back at that we, we spent so long talking about that <laughs> <laughs> Robin Duggan genetics possibly not Cy Bromley makes a point that reading it now as I reach early middle age, I think you're being generous to yourself there, so <laughs> um, I'll correct you. Reading it now as a middle-aged man is way more un- uncomfortable than when I read it as a teenager when the book came out, and I think that's been the case for me as well. It was yeah. like, I never really liked it. I, I found it uncomfortable, even at the time, but the implications of it are worse. When the ages are older, older than you, or a couple of years younger yeah. than you, then it's completely different, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah. At the time when I read this, a 16-year-old girl was some unattainable dream girl. <laughs> yeah. and, and now it's someone that I'd rather you know give a coat to and make sure that they're warm and home safe <laughs> rather than anything untoward yeah officer and actually like just to go off like uh, rob's pretty great actually at, at writing from quite a sympathetic point of view when it comes to like kids and especially young girls as we saw in fat which is yep. an excellent book and a very very um sympathetic one to one of the uh, with one of the characters who is a, a teenage girl with anorexia mm. yeah if if that's what his aim is yeah if that's what his purpose is like there's another version of this which is a, a horrible gritty <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, uh, tragic fiction about this poor woman Lindy Lou and he would write that really well yeah it's just that here he he does this scene for laughs, for laughs and yeah. I don't like that It's not worth overthinking. <laughs> well, let's move on. Well, I'll let Dave have the summary. This chapter exists only to facilitate the payoff, which exists only to tell you something about the cat that you never wanted to hear. I guess it's meant to be funny if you find the idea of a vagina shredding cock funny. But on that note, cocks have got it coming to them, so <laughs> yeah. it all balances out in the end, right? <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> this is yeah. This is. <laughs> Because it's the backwards world, it's a backwards <laughs> novel. The retribution for the for the cops comes <laughs> later. So we move on to more business with the teenagers. This is Cat and Lister as 
a load of sulky boys who go running out in the woods and have adventures and masturbate furiously <laughs> <laughs> all day every day instead of doing anything. But like I find this bit really funny, and I think it's well observed about teenagers to some extent. I slightly resent Rob's use of um, an insatiable appetite for computer games being a symptom of immaturity, and I think that's probably <laughs> a sign of the times it was written. I was going to say, that seems like it's a 90s thing. Yeah, for sure. I'd say give it another year or so from this book before PlayStation, basically, the marketing around PlayStation switched the perception in the wider yeah. world of video games from being something for nerds and kids to being something for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that PlayStation did necessarily change that, but it, do- it certainly changed the perception. You did get a few Gen Xs that were like, you know, adults who like loved playing Mega Drive, but they were all like always kind of painted as a bit of, of just like, you know, I don't know, not shut-ins, but just wasters. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but aside from that, that's good. But what I struggle with is that, uh, which I guess we'll come to in future chapters, but they're 15 now. They're 15 now. They're 15 from that's now it. off. For the rest of the novel, <laughs> those two characters are supposed to be sulky teenagers. And already, like before, we'll come to it, but before we even get to the end of this chapter, there's inconsistencies with how their brains work and how they're treated like sometimes the novel wants to treat them like the characters that we know and love and sometimes it remembers that they're supposed to be kids all we needed was starbucks deep sleep units can be programmed in reverse for rapid aging and so you know after a few nights spent you know they were back to their you know normal yeah have your cake and eat it have a few chapters of teenager jokes and then get them back to normal it's it's weird because at this point lister's probably about 200 years old yeah (laughs) yeah you know there's a calculation to be made there in terms of hours lived in his lifetime like he's lived up to like the age of 80 aged right back to 15 and then like he's gonna do you know what i mean it's like isn't that interesting then that his brain is that's the thing does he still remember he must be losing a lot of that as is you think as soon as you understand something you've forgotten it mm. like it's an awful thought like the, the idea uh, yeah. that you know but but does Lister retain everything that he's had which is why you're getting that discrepancy between old and young Lister like it's still like it, his body's still processing the hormones the way that teenagers yeah, are teenager he's still would, got yeah. the mind of a spider you know, 150 <laughs> year old <laughs> do you know what I mean though yes yeah okay yeah and I think it's one of those things that we put down to because they're strangers in this universe they're from the forwards universe not everything in the backwards universe affects them in the same way as it does the natives so mm-hmm. I think it's definitely true for the natives of that universe then that they they forget things as soon as they've learnt them but because Lister's brain still works forwards even though he adapted it you know and, and has adapted in certain ways and understands backwardsness he's got all those experiences I think he lived on Garbage World for 30 odd years and he lived with Kachansky for 30 odd years and he lived getting younger in Starbuck for 10 years it's weird because I can always, I can see the cat is completely the cat seems to be the one that's taken in completely by the whole backward system and there's like it just seems to be a different rule for the cat it seems like he is actually regressing yeah having that again having the mindset and having the yeah whereas list has a bit more control yeah yeah and the the cat is stupid and the cat mm. <laughs> you know picks up much more impulsive. picks up and yeah he just does what feels right at that moment and yeah you're right it's that the physical changes that are happening to Lister are affecting him that's what's making him sulky and moody 
and horny and, and wanking furiously all the time. But <laughs> that's Literally still happening. Literally wanking spanners at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And yeah, but that's affecting his hundred and something year old mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas the cat seems to be just—he is fifteen now. Yeah. Everything about him. That's how it feels, anyway. I don't know why, because he shouldn't be, but it does—it does feel like as if he, like, he's immune. Mm. It's like a nice idea that would fill an episode, right? In in the TV series, where Clem says that Crichton's illogical fretting about the boys playing in the forest at night is good too. Is that absolutely Crichton as Lister's mum, which is a fine line that you tread with Crichton, but <laughs> when, when you're on the right line of it, then it's uh, yeah, it, it works quite well. And like yeah, and a similar note, Dave says if Crichton is the mother of the teenagers, then Rimmer has become their father, and it yeah. works curiously well. You can just hear Chris delivering that sarcastic, marvelous line. Mm. Like because yeah. like, the whole idea of him wanting to actually point out to the cat that actually he just gained his virginity, not lost it. Like he, he would relish that idea. Yeah. Lister being unnecessarily mean about him being dead and wanting to point that out to. Yeah, that's exactly like the cat in Promised Land. Oh yeah. yeah. Mm. But Lister's just doing it out of pettiness yeah, <laughs> for no reason other than to make him feel bad. Like, well, you do it then. You can't, can you? Because you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> There seems to be some disagreement in the comments about whether or not all of this stuff is funny or just unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) International Debris says, The decision to make Lister and Cat teenagers allows for some viscerally unpleasant humour, crispy sheets, masturbation, but I'm not sure I really see how it benefits the plot. It feels like a bit of a step too far and it's my only real complaint about the book. Dave says, I found the description of Lister and Cat's behaviour as teenagers quite poignant and it made me quite melancholy with recognition when I first read this book as a teenager myself. And now as the father of two kids approaching their teens soon, it makes me quite melancholy with recognition all over again. I think it is well observed. Mm. Yeah, it definitely is. It's just... I mean, honestly, I can't really remember how things fully play out. I just know from, like, side comments, especially from Pete, that it doesn't really work that well <laughs> later on in the book. So it seems like a shame that it, it, it is a decision that's been made that kind of affects a disproportionate amount of the story. Um, when, again, really, it's like it, it's enough to hold together a chapter... A couple of chapters, and that's that's it. Because there's only so many times you have like, oh, Lister's moody and he wanks a lot, and <laughs> what else? He's a, he's just a he's a, he's a blocker to the story, and that's even though it, they don't follow through with it in this. Like the worry about Lister and Cat fucking up the launch by not turning up is like is really stressful because like you're not used to the lister or even the cat getting in the way of the plot getting in the way of progression yeah and sometimes that can be quite stressful to the reader when you're desperate to get off this fucking backwards world and get to some sort of normality yeah see what's going on with holly yeah in, uh, exactly yeah in the real world an alternate way that this could have panned out according to dave he he noted the use of the word propitious which i had to look up because i've never actually heard that word before Saying it's a nice word, isn't it? It makes me wonder if the effect of backwards time on Crichton has been to turn him back into a more of a David Ross-style Crichton, using more pompous and old-fashioned language, clucking with satisfaction or nerves, and filling his time with playing mother to the crew. And yeah, the way that he, as we've said, the way he mothers the two teenage boys is very much a more of a David Ross Crichton than a Crichton, than a Robert Llewellyn Crichton. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Crichton's always meant to be a bit uncomfortable with this science officer role. Mm. Um, so as soon as I guess he kind of gets the opportunity of like he doesn't really have to do much sciencing 
because because yeah. Starbuck is basically just a shelter during this time. It's not it's, it's not doing anything yeah. technological. It, they're, they're literally just waiting for it to fix itself. Yeah, I guess in the TV series that's not explored that often because for plot reasons it's necessary for Crichton to just get on with his science officer role. Yeah, but here, yeah, take the time to show other sides of him. Yeah, he must be relieved to just be able to do what he was programmed to do for a while of look after crew members look after and, yeah, make sure that their needs are met yeah um and i i do like the final line of this which is a sort of half callback to the end of chapter one of uh <laughs> Crichton's going um, 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 a seriously high-powered heat-seeking missile which <laughs> is similar to the for 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 10 years yeah except this time is just in his is not dialogue, it's internal monologue. Yep. So even in his own thought patterns, Crichton stammers about it. Can't quite bring himself. It's a very weird... Uh... Oh, fuck it, fucking my brain's melted. Like, why does it exist, right? Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's completely uh, inconsequential. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. It's such a damp squib because it's not actually gonna matter like just because because it just because a heat sinking missile hit them at some point doesn't mean that they're in any danger no because they know they've survived so yeah, why does it matter they know this that they can't come under any harm yeah. and the fact that yeah, there it, is, it explains like, it should be reassuring if anything to cry in that you know it should be the final piece of the puzzle to figure out oh that's what must have happened we must have been hit by a missile yeah, yeah. and that's why th- there's this massive gash that's more damaged than all the rest that's why we were so far off course that's why we had to scrape down the trees because that was the thing that was puzzling them yeah. the way that he's looking at it is from a forwards perspective of oh no Again, there's a missile coming towards us. We, to could, us we must be yeah. in, we yeah. must be in danger but what it, it should be seeing it as just the the pieces of the puzzle falling into place, like, because they've been sat there for ten years trying to figure out how the landing went so bad, and now, oh of course we must have been hit by a missile. Oh great! If one of them had had like if one of them had like a broken leg and like a knackered arm and you know like head injuries yeah. and stuff, and it's like oh well that's why the heat sinking missile is why you're fucked. There's no backwards jeopardy for this. That's one of the things that the TV series does better than this, the TV episode, rather, mm. because you have that mystery throughout of what's happened to Lister's. Why has he got a black eye? Why has he got broken ribs? And when that, then that happens, and it's like, ah, he's just sucked off my black eye. Not sucked off. He just sucked off my ribs. <laughs> that classic line. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hot, everyone. Uh, like, we yeah, are, to put in context, we are boiling. We are basically not functioning. <laughs> July nineteenth. July nineteenth. Yeah, it's ice fucking, age. Ice age very much ended. It's Freedom Day, and we're all in our houses. We're melting. all free. It's yeah. thirty-two degrees where I am. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, it just feels weird to have that kind of cliffhanger. It's not even a cliffhanger because it's not. It's no, there's no consequence. As the reader at this stage, we're used to the backwards logic enough to know yeah. that it's not yeah. a problem. So why is Crichton so obsessed with we it? We discussed last time that why is Crichton struggling with it, and I guess it, it goes so against his programming that he is constantly struggling against it, and it seems that even mm. ten years hasn't given him any sort of better skills. I guess you do forget with Crichton, because we treat him like any other character, you forget that he's a machine, yeah. and that you know he's got... Is, is programmed and it's based on logic and it's based yeah, on of course it's gonna, movement. <laughs> it's, of course, it's gonna yeah. fuck up his logic. Yeah, he did kill someone because of his lack of understanding. So. Because his programming was telling him 
that this would be helpful. Yeah. yeah. So he's useless. He's a fucking. He's, he's a liability to help on the back of the earth, basically. <laughs> he, he absolutely is. Yeah. <laughs> they, they do. They try and have their cake. And it, there's things that I definitely like about Gray, and I like the continuing thing of the list of things that he doesn't want to worry about <laughs> that he's trying to put from the back of his mind, and like. Yeah. Him being being pleased that there's only two massive things that he doesn't want to think about, <laughs> <laughs> and that being an auto. Mate, that hits hard. That it's <laughs> yeah. very hard. But they kind of do the thing of like Crichton has all this panic throughout, and then when the missile finally unhits, is he goes, "Oh, there, no harm done. I'll go and make some tea." Yeah. And it's kind of it feels like ah smug mode in Sirens when he's yeah. the one that's predicting that everything's going to be fine, and then it is fine. Yeah. But here he's been flapping about it. If it had been Rimmer saying, "Oh my God, there's a missile! There's a missile about to hit," and Crichton saying, "Look, everything's fine," then that moment would have felt a bit more earned. Yeah. But it's kind of trying to do both jokes. That's yeah, a weird one. And yeah, the bit that I was thinking of earlier when I was talking about the problems with Lister's age is there's a section right at the end after they're you know they've cleared the planet and they're in back in the solar system and they're heading back towards their own universe. It's like Lister size a sigh that had been building up for 50 years and reflects on everything and you know it's been living for two lifetimes at this stage that's not really compatible with (laughs) the childish brat that was there like two paragraphs ago Mm -hmm. no that's compatible with the lister that's lived for yeah Yeah. so maybe it is I mean like he is maybe naturally going to be flip flopping mentally yeah he is suffering from the effects of puberty and the hormones and yeah he's gonna, he's gonna still be like you know I mean, when you're going through puberty I mean at least I, I don't think I was a complete arsehole for the entire process like I think like you're normal for a lot of it and then every now and then it's a uh, If I recall correctly, it was a long time ago now, we're very old men, (laughs) but in my head I was the only normal one when I was a teenager and I had perfectly normal rational thoughts and I was calm and lucid and fine. But then as soon as I started to speak to other people, particularly parents or, you know, authority figures, I turned into a prick and it wasn't even... It wasn't even voluntary at times. It was just like a sort of <laughs> involuntary prickishness. Yeah. So maybe it does make sense that you know, in his, in his internal monologue, he's the same old Lister he always was. He just can't help but being a prick. Yeah, externally. Yeah. Yeah. You just you're on a completely separate plane of understanding. It's like trying to talk mm. to someone who's drunk. They're just not on the same plane of understanding as you. Mm-hmm. you. Unless you're in the same state, you can't do it. They just have literally have a different way of thinking when when you're a teenager, and nothing. That you know anything anyone else says to you will not be the case for you. It's never rational. It's never logical. But it is in your head. You're fine. It's everyone else that's mad and grown up as well. Like you're hundred percent grown up yeah, in your head. You know best. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of the missile, it's really weird <laughs> that it's um, it's pinned on a very particular missile defense system, and I think it shows just how pervasive or how like in the public eye the Star Wars program was. In the nineties, in the mm. mid to late nineties, does anyone like remember this? It's a great trilogy. I they mean, bought out the remastered VHS around this time, I think, which was the George Lucas edits where they changed a lot of the. I was going to say, funnily enough, they were having their remastered around about a year before another sci-fi uh, series <laughs> yeah. decided to do something. Um, no, but the Star Wars, this Ronald Reagan's. Uh, yeah, it, I think it might have been started by Reagan, but it was right. it was kind of put into place in like the mid to late nineties, and there's. Um, I think there's a there's a, a site in Yorkshire, and I remember some Filingdale's. I think. Yeah, I think it's not far from Whitby. It's um, it's either Filingdale's or it's fucking the 
terrifying one in Harrogate that just looks like just loads of balls everywhere. Menneth Hill, I think it's called. Menneth Hill, yeah. That's a listening station, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So I think it must be... Maybe that is where a lot of the data would come from, but the actual missile silos, will, we won't know where they are. They'll be... We'll release the... Uh, release Actually, the no, the missiles will be coming from America, <laughs> right? So th- this is purely just the listening portion. It's kind of over here in Europe. Filingdales is co-owned by the Ministry of Defence and NORAD, so it's... Um, and if anyone wants the uh, confidential details of exactly where all the missiles are, then check out the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll be releasing the. Oh, it's going to be a big. It's going to be a long, long show notes this uh, this week. But uh, yeah, no, it's it, it it's odd because you don't often. Most of the time, it'd be like a missile hitters because of missile defenses. But like the the fact that Rob has specifically said, oh, it's because of Star Wars, is very. Yeah, it's yeah. Really I guess it's because this is set fairly contemporaneously to when it was published, which is yeah. rare for Red Dwarf. Yeah, yeah. If it was in their own time, in their own universe, then yeah, if they were hit by a heat-seeking missile, wouldn't need an explanation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But here it's like, yeah, Earth did have this defense system, or you know, at least the America and you know America's buddies in the Cold War had this system in place. So it, it, this is why that there's a heat-seeking missile. The uh, the the controversy, of course, is that this system it was questionable whether it particularly protected parts of Europe or not. <laughs> whether it was purely uh, protection for America. I think actually what I remember is more. It was obviously the program was in place in the eighties, but in late nineties it was like being debated whether it should continue. There was a final phase of it being implemented or something. There was a debate about whether that should happen or not. I have no idea where it's at right now. It's probably still going, but. They're making more on Disney Plus. <laughs> you silly sods. <laughs> one thing I do like about the ending of this part is it's one of the earliest instances of Red Dwarf feeling like home for the characters, mm-hmm. and that's something that it, it's interesting. Like by the end of this novel, it's definitely that's the case. It, like it makes it explicit, and it's really nice. But it's something that simultaneously Doug's strand of Red Dwarf has developed over the years as well, like with. Like obviously post series six, but we've talked a lot in the Promised Land about Red Dwarf being home to the cat, for instance. Yeah, and it's yep. that that nice and the beginning plot, of course, for Red Dwarf, the slime's coming home, home referring to Red Dwarf rather than Earth, and it, yeah, this is one of those first instances, and it's always I like it when that mm. happens. Yeah. Of course, the, the the characters thinking Red Dwarf as home is also very important to the uh, ongoing monetization of Red Dwarf as a franchise. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is ironic, considering this is the last Red Dwarf that uh, Rob would write for 20, ages. No, 80, 17, 17 years? 25 years. 96 to 2001. Yeah, right, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Fuck me. Right, okay. <laughs> and so we end this part, as with all of them, on a bit of a cliffhanger that you know is just a little teasy one. Another one, oh, yeah. What's inside the box? <laughs> it is evil robots. With Paltrow's head. He'd assumed that Red Dwarf would still be there when he emerged into their own universe. Dun dun dun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's not really that much to say. It's because, like, we've, like we've said before, they've used it so many times this device of. Here's a tiny drip of information that you're about to yeah. find out about. There's, a, there's definitely a word for it that I, I, I can't bring to mind, but it reminds me of the sort of device where something bad is about to happen to to a character and then you suddenly jump and it says when when X thought back on this event 20 years later 
there were yeah in fact that actually happens in a red dwarf in, I think it's in, in one of the early novels. book isn't it yeah, so yeah. When, he, when he thought back to it 20 years later the main thing he'd remember is the screaming or something like that and you just do, do something that tells you that they'll be alive in 20 years but something bad is definitely about to happen it's, yeah it's a strange one I think we'll leave the last word on this part to Pete part 3 who quotes a line finally he gave up trying and simply nodded to Rimmer who gave the command engage I was living and working in the United Kingdom when Backwards was first released. I came in the middle of this novel, clearly a science fiction novel, and at once, to my horror and outrage, what I thought I read was a rip-off of Star Trek The Next Generation. I was already reaching for the telephone to call my lawyer when something happened that made me laugh. So he came half, it came in the middle of this novel, so that uh, let's, let's not figure out exactly what page that would be. Well, you won't be able to read it, they'd be stuck together. <laughs> Look out for those passages, chaps. <laughs> but before we fuck off completely onto the uh, onto the next bit, there's a midlog. Midlog. There's a midlog to talk about. International debris says it's not a word. No, I, I'm not sure. Is it a thing? Is a midlog? A I thing? think it is yeah. because when I was writing it in my notes it didn't have a red squiggly line underneath oh is it a bit like a quadrilogy which used to not be a thing but is now a thing because of marketing (laughs) (laughs) interlude apparently is the better word for so midlog is just or interlog yeah interlog i like midlog it's very dwarfian in terms of like backing up words that completely get across the idea without much without much being said yeah, although really it's prologue part one. Epilogue part one. Sorry, epilogue part fuck me. Well, it's it's the middle of a log trilogy. We're not in an epilogue anymore. It's Freedom Day. <laughs> Why not fashion it into some sort of log trilogy? <laughs> 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 but yeah, this is a slice of Young Rimmer's life following the decision about whether to hold him back a year or not. I like it and I really like being in Young Rimmer's head and the journey that he goes on in this of like finally getting some determination to do something and, and make his mother proud and etc. We get a picture of Rimmer's mother of just being this horrible, <laughs> horrible oh, woman. Who, More child like, abuse on, cha- on yeah. top of child abuse. Both of Rimmer's parents are terrible people. Yeah. Although we don't see any direct evidence of his dad being terrible but we, you can assume. Yeah. I mean, he does put them on stretching racks and stuff. Ah, but not in the book universe. True. Well, <laughs> there is one thing before I forget about it, is that they're presumably really well off, Rimmer's parents, because like they're they're upper class in IO society. They send mm-hmm. all their kids to private school, and depending on which version of them you, you're reading, they can buy these expensive implant chips and all, all this stuff. <laughs> And yet they still make Arnold wear Howard's hand-me-downs that are two yeah. sizes too big for his kit when they could afford to buy him new kit, surely. Mate, I mean, yeah. a big feature of rich people, especially old money, is being tight as badgers' asses. That's true. true. Yeah. With, with, for small things like that. They want they, they want to keep the money. They don't want to spend mm-hmm. it. And that's yeah. why they are rich. But anyway, my only problem with this section is that what happens to Rimmer here, and this is Arnold Rimmer, this is our Rimmer mm-hmm. as he's about to win the race legitimately and fairly through his own effort, he gets Tonya Hardinged he has <laughs> <laughs> someone kicks him with his spiked running shoes yeah. and deliberately injures him and, and prevents him from winning the race, that's not Arnold's fault No, none of his actions here contribute to that happening, he's just being bullied and Mm -hmm. and put upon and it's it's kind of designed to show that this version of Rimmer is just this perennial loser 
but it's not his failing. Everything else that our rumor does, like all his problems that he has with exams and stuff, is because he's so bad at revising and his priorities are all wrong, and he spends months making his revision timetable only to discover that he's put in two Septembers or whatever it was. Whereas here, it's just unfair. It's just yeah. not Arnold's fault that yeah. this has happened. Well, this is kind of an early formative moment. Um, the, the the way I read it is that when he's held back a year, no one bullies him just because no one's going to bully the old kid. Yeah. Um, and because of that, um, that mom- early moments like this where he is going through a very important formative moment where he's like realising that he's dragging himself down and he tries his hardest and he's still punished. Mm. It's probably a moment where, he's, where he ends up just you know thinking fuck it you know or like there is no point and so he continues the downward spiral of being defeatist about everything and because his mother was such a bastard as clem says rumor's mother is really a bastard here um (laughs) the um, bastard rumor's mother's really is a bastard um says clem that it's easy to kind of look at and blame her because you know her scorn is kind of fueled that moment um so then further along in his timeline he's more culpable mm. but because he was damaged by by kind of unfair events this like is this what, yeah, because this he is one young. of those rare moments where he's right to feel aggrieved yeah and right to feel that the world's against him um and so later on in life he uses that as an excuse yeah, for everything he keeps harping even on when that. it is his fault. Yeah. Well it's his mother's fault that this happened. Because of the hand me downs. <clears throat> no, because uh Rimmer was spared being held down thanks to his mother's intervention. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's true, yeah. And so by doing that he ended up in the class with this dickhead. <laughs> Dicky Duckworth. Dicky Dickhead Duckworth. <laughs> and so he was the one that was kept down. He's the one that's been kept back a year. And he's the guy mm. who and he's using it to bullet, yeah. And he's yeah. yeah so uh, uh, that's the difference. Is the fact that it was Rimmer's mother who kept him back, and that's the diff- that's what made the difference between, which has always been the case. Is it me, or is the implication that Rimmer's mother's intervention <laughs> in the matter was of a sexual nature? <laughs> you think there was some sort of sexual motive? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, quite possibly. I mean, it's not like you'd think if there was that Rob would maybe make it a little bit more blatant. That's true. <laughs> There's lots of versions of Rimmer's mother, but the kind of the sexual, not deviant, but the kind of the more sexually motivated, promiscuous, one, promiscuous mm. one is more TV series, in early TV yeah. series. Silly old trout. Silly old trout. <laughs> That's possibly a good point. Clem points out as well as calling Rimmer's mother a bastard. It's out that Bull Heinemann and Wet Weirdos and Fatties is a callback to Better uh, Than Life, yeah. where. Rimmer imagined his uh, his old PE teacher as one of the people that was picking on him in, in the prison. And uh, International Debris says, add poisonous snakes and crossbows to the precious tomahawk in terms of the Rimmer brothers' weaponry. <laughs> and, and baby, you got a stew going. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything more to say about this before we have a bit of a sting of music and a little breather? Uh, only that it's really difficult to talk about without being able to talk about part two of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're, and, yeah. we're maybe going to have to revisit this, we'll have to revisit this one yes, we'll as a whole yeah. um, in part, maybe part we'll release fight. a special podcast at the end called Just the Logs yeah Just the Logs, Just the yeah. logs. make this a six part series uh, that finishes in 2022 are we going to include the log as well and <laughs> log number 1996 okay, yeah. Just, yeah, okay. that's my favourite one in which case on that note let's just have a little breather and uh, have some 
sultry music before we whap our small points out. Our barbed points. <laughs> So as this was a small part, we have a small number of small points for this small section. Either that or people are getting bored of fucking waiting for us and giving up. <laughs> there is that. Well, there was a, there was a point where we we said to ourselves, oh, we've not had that many comments in this time round. Like, maybe people are starting to drop off. And then we realised, oh, no, it's because there's only five chapters and everyone has commented. It's just <laughs> yeah, it takes true. less comments in order to do so. <laughs> but, yeah, it's... Uh, couple of little moments that people pointed out from earlier on in the book. Clem points out a nice line, Crichton brightened. <laughs> Clem describes it as cute. Yeah, you, it's because you can Im- immediately picture it, can't you? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Ooh, ooh. Good, good prose. Pretty pleased about that. Yeah, what Warbodog makes a good point about Rimmer. Uh, Rimmer getting relegated to Cat's role of background character with occasional quips is a consequence of him not having much to do in this scenario. And like, I guess, as a side note, it's needed because Lister and Cat need so much time, screen time. But uh, it's fine for change, but a bit unbalanced considering there's not a lot to compare Ace and the prologue midlogs to. But then again, we know Rumor by now and it's an ensemble. It's, it's, it's an interesting one, because like, it's kind of a similar problem that Last Human had, and that we get like you know a, a certain focus on Rimmer, but mm. do we get enough setup? No, I think for the whole of or most of the first part which is the bulk of the Backwards World stuff, Rimmer is more of our... Just don't forget in that part, the cat was next no, to useless yeah, because true. the cat mm-hmm. was the only one speaking forwards and now everyone's flipped so, so that the cat can fit in and the cat can do stuff. But Rimmer was our audience surrogate throughout almost the entire thing there because Crichton is Crichton, Mr. Exposition, and Lister was acclimatised to the extent that he felt like he was part of the backwards world. So we got loads of rumour at that stage. Yeah, that's true. I think it's definitely true that there's minimal of him in this section, and he is just in the background, not really being involved with the main plot at this stage. But yeah, there's also the fact that, yes, standing alone, you might get that impression from this book that there's not much to compare Ace and the logged rumours <laughs> with. But this is part three slash four of a trilogy slash quadrilogy that comes after six series and I don't think there's very many people that are going to pick up backwards and only know Rimmer from backwards very true true. I think we should be uh, congratulated by the way that we've said midlog so many times we haven't made one shit joke oh we've made plenty of shit jokes (laughs) well loads of shit jokes but no shit jokes (laughs) we leave that to Rob in this (laughs) section Guy Bromley's small point is he quotes Rimmer slouched to the scanner table and flopped into a chair. Smeg me, I'm bushed. Have we ever heard the word smeg used like that before? Because it sounds fucking ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Yeah. It just doesn't scan right, does it? Yeah, and it feels like also one of those lines that has been uh, attributed to the wrong character. Um, as we got a lot of in Last Human again. Mm. It, just it like just doesn't feel line, very rimmery. Yeah, it feels yeah. like a Lister line. Yeah. This like casual use of smeg me, which isn't you like Rimmer would use the word smeg as like more of a kind of a violent expletive, if you know what I mean. Like, like, like when he's angry or, or yeah. it's directed at someone rather than you know a bit more whimsical like this. Well, yeah. it's just the thing that smeg in the oeuvre of a dwarf 
replaces pretty much every swear word. Yeah, in every yeah. context. Uh, in every type of context, and this is one of the ones where it doesn't quite fit as well as when it means fuck off or whether it means fuck shit. Just f- fine fuck replaces smeg. Yeah. <laughs> This particular, because like fuck is one of the most versatile words in the English language, uh, but in this particular use of it, smeg sounds a little bit wrong. Yeah. Smeg me, because smeg hasn't got like the kind of the the punch that fuck does. The punch that fuck does. <laughs> <laughs> the little punch that. <laughs> I have small point or two. Okay. In fact. <laughs> I just wanted to note the phrase a growing aching tumescence inside his trousers <laughs> as being one of the least red dwarfy lines ever to appear in a red dwarf related product. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's Mills and Boone, isn't it? That's, that's <laughs> like, you know, you're Catherine Cookson's and you. Well, there's, there's Twitter accounts of just like, you know, men write sex badly. Yeah, um, and um, most of this, most of that chapter applies to that. Women, women love an aching tumescence. <laughs> I've got a small point. It, it's only it is only a reference that it, it sort of hasn't aged well. Is that the it, the book mentions Mister Magoo, and I don't think people know Mister Magoo. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, like blind pew in the yeah, <laughs> sort of a very strange Barney Magoo. But yeah, Mr. Magoo, for those who don't know, is a, a, well, originally was a cartoon character who was incredibly myopic and couldn't see Famously, The famously myopic cartoon character. Yeah. <laughs> Similarly, in the mid-log, Rimmer's mom is described as a cross between Nurse Ratchet and Mrs. Danvers. Uh, I knew who, who Nurse Ratchet was. That's the one from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest mm-hmm. that's parodied in Space and uh, played by Thingy from Terry from uh, no. Joanna Scanlon. Joanna Scanlon. Angela Scanlon's the one who did Robot Wars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I had to look up Mrs. Danvers because that wasn't referenced in space and that's is where all my... Is from... Is it from a Hitchcock? No. Oh, I thought it was from a... It's from Daphne du Maurier's 1938 novel, Rebecca, obviously. Oh, but it, hmm. is, the, it is the thing I'm thinking of, which is the, um, the Michelin Webb uh, sketch about the Mrs... Oh, Mrs. De Winter. Is that, the, is that that one? And I've just further read, having re-googled, that um, it was made internationally famous by the movie adaptation by Alfred Hitchcock. There we go. So that's, that's yeah. Come full circle. Danny was right. <laughs> I was going to say, there must have been something that put it in Rob's head, and it wouldn't have been a 1930s novel solely. Another culture reference that I, I, I kind of got, but I had to look up to double-check. Cat um, <laughs> is described as... Oh, uh, shit... At one point, the cat's toes were Rudolf Noriaving beneath a slatted window. A, that's a rare use of a proper noun as a verb, because Brent <laughs> Naylor love a noun as a verb, but this is someone's name as a verb. And Rudolf Noriev uh, was a famous ballet dancer. Yeah, okay. So Male ballet dancer from the Soviet Union who defected to the West. Yeah. I only knew that name from the, the immortal phrase, eat your tits out, Rudolf Noriev, from one of Bottom's live shows. Wow, <laughs> so... Definitely like late 80s, early Very 90s. much in the sort of the mindset of those yeah. comedians at that time. Like Rudolf yeah. Nureyev was definitely their sort of go-to. He was well, in the ballet chair at that time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't in it for much because he was too busy doing ballet. Yeah, his chair was there for when he needed it. Yeah, just have a rest. He was getting on at that stage. <laughs> Resting was Wayne's sleep. That was his. <laughs> Any other small points? 
Yeah, I've got a question. Why, where the fuck is there a pair of tits and an arse on the Czech Republic <laughs> cover of Backwards? <laughs> is this the joke based around the... Um, shaped like Felicity Kendall's bottom, is that the idea? Yeah, I think it might be that famous joke from a different book and a (laughs) TV series that isn't this book. Planet like a pair of tits. Planet boob. Planet boob. I don't think anyone's got a satisfactory answer to that. No. It's a mystery for the ages. But it's like, it's meant to resemble a pair of tits, not actually be a pair of tits. Literally. In space. space, It's like, like you know, if... if, um, Python went to space. Tits in space. That's what you'd get. You'd, you'd just have like a pair of cut out tits in space. <clears throat> Meaning of life, galaxy song video. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. If Python went to space, for sake. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, the opening sequence of Meaning of Life also has tits in space, I believe. Yeah. If I remember correctly. Well, well it's got a naked tits. woman, and the, the entire animation goes straight into a vulva. So. Yeah. Oh, very true. Right, time to put our small points away and close with some small passages. Obviously, it's a small section, so <laughs> Denny is first. Yeah, let's get straight into it. So this is... I just like, yeah. Lister had brought up an entire shank of the rabbit by the time he reached Starbuck. There was a plate on the scanner table with more bones on it. He dumped the joint he just regurgitated onto the plate and picked up another bone as Cryant stepped in from the small kitchenette that led into the midsection opposite the cockpit. Ah, you found lunch, sir. Lister waved the bone. Where did it come from? The waste disposal unit regurgitated some bones. Close analysis indicated they probably belonged to a creature of the Arictolagus cuniculus genus, a burrowing, gregarious, plant-eating mammal with long ears, a short tail, varying colour from bra- It's a rabbit, right? <laughs> just, that's just what I said, sir. I found a suitably dirty plate and arranged the bones on it. Oh, he peered at the plate. You've already disgorged a poison. <laughs> oh, you've, you've drank it. I'll make some more. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, you better get a barbecue ready. We're going to have to uncook it soon. After which, presumably, I take the bloody raw dead carcass and try and insert it into its skin. That's my guess. Yeah, I reckon you'll find some sort of trap to stick it in. Leave it out overnight and then bingo. Come morning, you'll be frolicking around and gregariating with all his bloody friends. <laughs> Crichton brightened. Wonderful. I like a meal with a happy ending. <laughs> Phil. Gregariating. Gregariating. Being gregarious. Yeah. That sounds like a fucking... Crossword clue. It's just Lister doesn't understand what the word means, so he's just throwing it back at him. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those where you can totally see that scene in the TV series. Right down to the um, description of the layout of Starbug. It's just it's Series yeah. 6. Isn't series it? 6 it's, Starbug. It's in Star Legion with the space. Yeah. That's right, yeah. Capsi, your passage, I believe, is the next passage that I would like to hear from. Indeed. Because this is Holly, I expect everyone to cheer as soon as um, I start reading it. Okay. I have no idea how long this is going to go on for, but um, I'll find a good point. Welcome to Dwarfcast. Welcome to Dwarfcast. <laughs> Holly had started life as an onboard computer of the mining ship Red Dwarf. He'd been blessed with a fairly respectable IQ of 6,000, which had been more than enough for him to get the job done, with sufficient brain power left to defeat a couple of chess grandmasters while simultaneously composing a fugue or two, making wholesale corrections to some laughably naive misconceptions in Stephen Hawkins and Albert Einstein's entire textual output. Mm. Then a nuclear accident had killed off all but one of the crew, and Holly had been forced to spend the best part of three million years alone. The interminable loneliness had driven him, not to mince words, slightly balmy. <laughs> one circuit short of a Grand Prix track, computer senile. 
And so he might have remained were it not for a seemingly innocent suggestion by a cheap plastic talking toaster. Ollie reflected sadly that actually being prepared to solicit advice from a budget priced kitchen appliance was a mark of how low his intellect had dipped. Sadder still, he found himself wishing desperately that Talkie Toaster, TM Peyton applied for, was still around to advise him now. The toaster had suggested that Holly might accelerate his intellect at the cost of slightly reducing his life expectancy of his runtime. And it had worked. Holly achieved a staggering IQ in the high 12,000s, only instead of measuring his life expectancy in terms of millennia, he had measured it in milliseconds. Still in his brilliant state, the paltry seconds allotted to him had been enough for him to formulate a rescue plan. He programmed the ship's Navicom to head for the backwards universe. Because of the reverse physics there, operating at his maximum intellect actually increased his lifespan. If he could have stayed there for a few decades, everything would have been just peachy. He would be one super smart cookie of a computer right now. Unfortunately, he had to return to his own universe, where he'd left Rimmer and the cat stranded in Starbug. <coughs> and Crichton. Fuck Crichton, Holly thought. <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't remember now quite why he hadn't brought them with him. Perhaps the trip had been too dangerous for them. Perhaps the stasis booths wouldn't operate if time was running backwards. Oh, that'll be it. That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> Whatever the rationale, his genius self had left them there and must have had a damn fine reason. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it, yeah. you know what happens after that. It's interesting what Holly's doing there, now that I think of it, is like the plot inconsistencies project. It's like there's this, <laughs> <laughs> there's this plot hole and he's offering some solutions for it. It's like, well, I can't be sure, but maybe it's to do with this or maybe some it's of these that. Options, yeah. He's a fan trying to fill in a plot hole in a story that he is the protagonist in. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. And also, it's a really, it's a masterclass in, um, in recap. I mean, because that mm. passage starts at the very start of the whole series and from yeah. Holly's perspective, I guess. And yeah, yeah barrels right through. It's very good. And finally, more highbrow entertainment for you. As we come to the section that I put in my notes as all the wanking <laughs> brackets, <laughs> page 153 to 154. What bothers me is that pair of irresponsible gimboids are going to have to pilot this damn thing. It's going to be a hell of a ride, crashing backwards through those trees while those two masturbate furiously up front. Crichton turned. Oh, I don't think they masturbate excessively, sir. Not for young men of their age. Are you kidding? It's like the bloody monkey house up in those rest quarters. There's more fiddling goes on up there than in the court of Old King Cole. I swear to God they don't even stop during meal breaks. Crichton didn't reply. All the available databases he'd been able to consult were singularly unforthcoming in this area. The truth was, the boy's obsessive pursuit of sexual self-gratification did seem a little over the top to him. Then again, he was left somewhat bewildered by the human sexual process altogether. He understood that, in order to reproduce, humans sought each other out, got naked, and jiggled up and down on each other until various ucky fluids had been secreted. Well, fine. It seemed to him a particularly messy process, but there, humans were stuck with it, the poor beggars. What was truly baffling was the amount of physical and mental energy the species appeared to devote to the pursuit of this sticky jiggling. Most of their songs seemed to be connected to it in some way. It cropped up in almost all of their books and magazines. He couldn't help feeling that if, heaven forbid, he himself had been afflicted with these irrational urges, then at the very least he'd have the good taste to keep quiet about it. I like, um... Jiggling up and down until various ucky fluids had been released. It's like a more explicit version of Crichton's line in Sirens, uh, when he's talking to Lister about Kachansky. It's your fond hope to one day lie up on top of her and move up and down rapidly. 
Yeah, that's, that's like the TV safe version, and this is the book version. Yes, the after dark version. And speaking of things that are only really suitable in the books and that you couldn't get away with on TV, uh, let's look forward to the next section <laughs> of the book, which is called Nipple-Sized Pastry Cutters, Gonad Electrocution Kits and Easy Listening Music. I'm sick of all these like perfunctory, straightforward part titles that give you a clear clue of what's going to happen next. It's got to be one of my favourites. What's going to happen? There's no clues, actually. This is the first one that isn't actually saying there's agonoids in it. (laughs) (laughs) But what are they? (laughs) Find out next time uh, on our next book club. And if you want to have your say, then get your comments in over on the article for this Dwarfcast at www.ganymede.tv. Our next podcast will be a Waffleman special, where we just talk loads of shit about Red Dwarf and nothing else. (laughs) Just the waffles. But by the time you hear this, we'll have already recorded that, so don't worry too much about getting your questions in for that. But if you want to contribute to future Wafflemans, then you can leave a comment on GNT or tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. But until next time, ladies and gentlemen, stay safe, stay alert, stay happy. Stabilizers, also known as training wheels, are an additional wheel or wheels mounted parallel to the rear wheel of a bicycle that assists learners until they have developed a usable sense of balance on the bicycle. Typically, they're used in teaching very young children to ride a bike, although versions for adults do exist. And as always, Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. As always, we recommend you re-familiarise with that. Every time. Every time. Is a recommend. Same word. <laughs> As always, we insert previous take from other Dwarfcast here. <laughs> As always, we recommend you re-familiarise eyes. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> As always, we suggest you brush up on the book before listening, and if you forgot what happened last time... <laughs> sorry. Oh, fuck. Very good, but sorry. I should, um, I should shut up. <laughs> Plus, the pilot is lacking a black eye and wearing a St. Christopher's medal that can't... That, that fuck. Couldn't fucking have it. <laughs> An alternate way that this could have panned out, according to Dave, he, he noted the use of the word propitious... Propi- uh, fuck. Propitious? 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 He noted... He, <laughs> propices. Propitious. <laughs> Very pretty anus. <laughs> Proper tit. <laughs> Proper tit, I tell thee. Cat, uh, it says the cat, cat's toe. (laughs) (laughs) Get get wrecked, you. (laughs) Because this is Holly, I expect everyone to cheer as soon as um, I start (laughs) reading it. (coughs) So Danny made me laugh so suddenly that I've kind of, (coughs) like, hurt my throat somehow. He just just put me in mind of, um, (laughs) is it Julie Walters? With the, with the fucking it sounded suit. like Julie Walters because it's just as soon as she walks oh, I'll just I'll just go and check and then it just <laughs> runs off perfect. and then yeah I know you could do some good impressions Danny but that is li- that is pitch perfect <laughs> Julie Walters <laughs>
Which means you could probably impersonate my Auntie Anne because she has the exact same voice and mannerisms as Julie Walters. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's where the real money is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. 